Well, this morning, as we go into the book of Leviticus, I invite you to open there to Leviticus chapter 16. We come to what I am calling the, uh, the pinnacle, the climax of the book of Leviticus. Everything up to this point has been leading to chapter 16. And everything following this is, is, I don't want to call it downhill, but it follows from chapter 16. Think about the outline of Leviticus I've put before you the last couple of weeks. The first five chapters deal with, help me, sacrifices, right? Burnt, grain, peace, sin, guilt. <coughs> Let's deal with sacrifices. The second five. Verses, chapters 6 through 10 deal with the priests and how they deal with the sacrifices and their ordination. And then 11 through 15 deal with, come on, you can't miss 12, to 12 and 15. What does it deal with? Cleanliness. Okay, so think about here the, the Day of Atonement. We're going to have the best of sacrifices offered by the highest of priests to give us the cleansing of all cleansing, cleansing of the entire nation. That is what chapter 16 is all about. And and, and, in the first 15 chapters, they're all about coming near to God. The sacrifices allow us to, to make peace with God and to come to God. And the priests are the ones that facilitate that. And cleanliness has to do with whether you are able to come into God's presence. So it's all about coming to God. And in chapter 16, we see the pinnacle of coming to God. And then chapters 17 through 27 are about living with God. So it's coming to God, chapter 16, and then living with God. We're going to see just chapter after chapter about holy living and pure living and righteous living. And I just know that my prayer is this for Rock Valley Bible Church, that we would be a holy, righteous people. We just love Christ and follow in His ways. Well, chapter 16 is the hinge that all holds it together. It describes the Day of Atonement. Now, you can read this whole chapter and the Day of Atonement doesn't appear in this chapter, but it does in chapter 23, verse 27. It, it calls it there the Day of, of Atonement. And that's the context of describing all the feasts and the festivals the Jews were to keep, like Passover and the... Feast of Weeks and the Trumpets and the Booze, etc. And there is the Day of, a, of Atonement that comes. But the Day of Atonement in Hebrew is Yom Kippur, which is the title of my message this morning, Yom Kippur. It's not Yom Kippur, okay? It's not, I've heard some people say it, right? Yvonne, you've heard some people say that, right? Yom, Jewish people have said it even. Shame on them. They're Reformed Jews or the liberal Jews. They say Yom Kippur and that's, that's not so good. But Yom is the word for day and Kippur is the word for atonement. So Yom Kippur, you put those together, day of atonement. Now that's a word we don't use very much. It's got a lot of nuances of meaning what atonement means. But it, 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 can, it can mean a lot of things. At, at its root, this word Kippur means to cover but the implication is you're covering for a purpose. You're covering for a purpose of, of reconciliation or, or redemption, or it can even be translated salvation in some regards. Um, but the fundamental idea of Kippur is, is atonement. So you've got Yom Kippur, a day of atonement, a day of reconciliation, a, a day in which man becomes reconciled to God. And the sin that caused the division between the two has been removed 
and we are then reunited with God. Now, you might think of it this way, that atonement is at one mint. That's how it works. Atonement at one mint. Just like, like justified, in some regards, means just as if I never sinned. That's kind of half of the meaning, but at one mint. Atonement. It means that we are, are one with God. Now, the, the Jews have celebrated and do celebrate the Day of Atonement. Through the sacrifices of the high priest, the people are atoned, made right with God. Now, it's interesting here, what the Jews knew in part, we know in full. The Jews celebrate this one day every year, and we know it every day. Because Jesus has become our at-oneness, at-one-ment. He has dealt with our, our sins once for all. He, he's reconciled us to God. And we, we believe in Jesus. Our sins are wiped away. We can have communion with God. just need to believe this church family. And I say never lose sight of the wonders of what we have in Jesus. See, the Jews came here after year after year after year seeking this, this unity with God. But, but Christ has come once with one single sacrifice never to be repeated. Consider Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. And, and just the mere fact that they were offered time and time again just, just is, a, is a shadow that there's something better than this. There's something better. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. One offering, perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And how, how different our life is than the Jews. I mean, they were instructed to come to the Lord in a, in a solemn assembly once every year. And even Jews today gather for this day. In, in verse 29 of chapter 16, we see it's the seventh month, the tenth day, which puts it like late September, early October. This year it's going to fall on September 23rd. This is arguably the highest day in the Jewish calendar. Uh, you, you might think about equating it to Christmas. Uh, our, our Christmas. I mean, Walmart that's never closed is closed on Christmas Day. And many other businesses are never formed. Per- Never closed or closed on Christmas Day. That one day in our culture that, that is like the pinnacle holy day, the one that everybody talks about, and, and because it's economically driven in our society, right? You get your buy your Christmas presents, it's good for the, for the dollar. But it's that one day. Well, the Day of Atonement was a little bit like that, only it wasn't a time for rejoicing and gift giving. On the contrary, it was rather a very solemn assembly. It was to be a time of fasting and prayer. Verse 29 and 31 say that. It was a Sabbath for the people. No work being done that day. It was a day set apart to deal with God. And you can see the tone set there in verse 1. So the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. 
These words are coming on the heel of chapter 10 when Nadab and Abihu were just ordained. These are the oldest two sons of Aaron. And they went before the Lord and decided to do things their own way. They offered up strange fire before the Lord, which God had not commanded them to offer up. As a result, fire came from before the Lord, consumed them, and they died before the Lord. That's the context of these words. They're bringing up death. And as we read through here, you're going you're gonna to see over and over again, do things right lest you die. Do things right lest you die. That added to the solemnity of the occasion. Added to the weight of the sacrifices that were offered on that day. And I'm sure that Aaron and his sons were filled with fear. Like Nadab and Abihu messed up and they died. I, less, I better not mess up lest I die. And in verse 2, the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, that is, on the ark, so that he may not die. There it comes up again. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. And I'm sure that with Aaron and his sons, they said, don't come near the holy place lest you die. I'm not going near. I'm staying away. And I'm sure that they were as well. They'd seen Nadab and Abihu burned alive and they weren't going to near that place. So let's just, let's just remind ourselves again. We've got the, the tent of meeting and the, the tabernacle in the courtyard. Right? This is the big picture. You've got the, the curtains all around. You've got the, the bronze altar there. You've got the labor to wash. And then you've got the first veil. And so you come in here, the first veil. There's the... Um, the lampstand, the table of showbread, and the altar of incense. And then there's another veil here where you've got the outer tabernacle and then you've got the holy place. And in there is the Ark of the Covenant with a cherubim overshadowing the mercy seat. In the Ark of the Covenant is the uh, Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant which Moses had and uh, a jar holding manna. And that is often called the Holy of Holies. I mean, you can even see it there. That's called the mercy seat. That, that flat spot there, like of any place on earth, that is where God dwelt. And that's why we couldn't be there. You know, so many people today, I alluded to this last week, just think that God is God. And of course we could come into God's presence. But in our humanness, God is different than we are. And some things need to be done. And one of the things that God did was put that veil there so that you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't go there. And the priests were told, don't go there. Lest you die. Now, the priests were entering the outer tabernacle on a daily basis. Every morning and evening, they would put incense there on the altar of incense to see it burn in front of the veil. But behind that veil, they never went. Because they were told here in verse 2 not to go except on the Day of Atonement, which is what chapter 16 is all about. So let's look here at verse 3. In this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place. Okay, here's how he shall come. He's got to prepare some things. He's got to come with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. He shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban on his head. These are the holy garments. And he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people, all Israel, two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. And when Aaron or one of his sons or the high priest would come before the Lord, they, they need to prepare some things. First of all, some animals need to be ready for the priest. You got a bull and a ram, the bull for a sin offering and the ram for a burnt offering. And it's interesting, the rest of the chapter is not even going to mention this ram, but it is there. There's some other things happening you don't even see in this chapter. The focus is on the bull. 
but the ram was offered as well and totally burnt up because it was a burnt offering. The congregation brought two goats and a ram. Two goats were for the sin offering and the ram was for the burnt offering. And likewise, that ram is not even going to be mentioned, though somewhere in the ceremony it was certainly offered. The high priest was to wash himself and then dress himself, not in the colorful robes of the high priest, not, not in the, 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 the sashes and the, the colorful breast piece and, and the gold plate, not in any of that. Rather, just four simple white garments. If you pull them out there, it's the, the linen coat. The linen undergarment, the linen sash, and the linen turban. In fact, these clothes were even more plain than the average priest would wear on just a daily occasion. At least they had a bit of blue and purple in their robes, but the high priest on this day all decked out in white. I think some of that is probably so that the priest doesn't have anything of himself that he's bringing to God. Like it's not like he's got his patch or he's got like he's got his gold on this. He, he's just coming in simple white garments before the Lord. And once prepared, verse six through ten is the overview to what he should do. And Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself, and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use his sin offering, but the goat which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it that may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Now, we'll, we'll deal with that later as we get the details. But remember what, what's happening here. First, he sacrificed a bull, makes atonement, and then he takes the two goats and he says, one is for the Lord, one is the scapegoat, the Azazel. Takes the goat, offers it, takes the goat, lets it go. That's just a, an overview of what's happening. These are the, the three events that took place on that day. First, a sacrifice for the priest, and then a sacrifice for the people, and then the scapegoat, as I'm calling it here, for a picture. And each of these teach us in ways about Jesus. In fact, as, as Darren commented, the book of Hebrews we're reading that in conjunction with our exposition of Leviticus because it's a commentary on Leviticus showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of, of all these things. But particularly, there are two chapters, chapters 9 and 10, that focus upon the Day of Atonement. So I'll be quoting from them a lot. I've already quoted from chapter 10. I'll quote from more of that just so you see how central this is to understanding Christ. Well, let's look at the, let's look at the first event, the sacrifice for the priest. Verses 11 through 14. And Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. And he shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take the censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, here it is, so that he shall not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side, and in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Just trying to picture that scene, if you will. Aaron takes the bull outside, it's a sin offering. He slits its throat. Blood's pouring out. He, he butchers it. He takes the fat, the kidneys, the lobe of the liver, throws it up there for a, a burnt offering. 
And he takes some of the, the coals from the fire along with some incense that would just be smoky, smelly stuff. And he also takes some, some blood. Now, by the way, he, he would often take incense into the, uh, the outer tabernacle as he, he would come there. But, but this time, he's going to take these things and open that veil on the seventh month, tenth day and bring it before the Lord. And it's important here that the smoke covers the mercy seat. Now, we don't, we don't know why supposed to cover the mercy seat, but the picture is just this cloudy mess. This is on that, that picture there. Just kind of, You can see how it's, it's cloudy a little bit. One commentator said this, the purpose of the incense smoke was to create a screen which would prevent the high priest from gazing upon the holy presence. Maybe. But it is a smoky place. Kind of, kind of surreal, if you will, in a confined room. And he shall take his finger and dip it in the blood of the bull and sprinkles it seven times in the mercy seat. And all the time, as was repeated over and over here in the verses 11 through 14, it's for himself, it's for himself, it's for himself. He offers up this sacrifice for himself. He's careful to do exactly as the Lord instructed, lest he die because he did something wrong. And I say that this is no idle threat. Lest you do something wrong. And Nadab and Abihu, obviously. But in Exodus 28, verse 35, God instructed Moses to tell Aaron to put a bell on his robe when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, that he might be heard, that he might die. That's what that says. In other words, they can hear him jingling around and say they're outside the bed. They can hear him. Yes, he's there. He's there. He's moving around. In fact, Jewish tradition says they used to tie a rope around his waist. So in case something did go wrong in the holy place and he died, they could pull him out without other people entering the fray and dying also as they see the Ark of the Covenant. Now, there's no historical evidence for this. I mean, um, we don't see Josephus or any Jewish historian talking about this, but it is Jewish tradition. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but it does speak to the threat is the high priest entering the holy place seeking forgiveness for his own sin. He's coming, not claiming anything of himself. He's not claiming his garments. He's not claiming... He's just say, here's the blood. I'm doing what you said. And I am seeking unity between you and me, O Lord, with, with this blood. And the whole purpose of this was to cleanse himself so that he could take the blood of the goat for the people. And I just I say this, this. This teaches us a lesson here that even the holiest of people sinners. And the, the high priest is like the holiest in the land. With all the privileges, with all the opportunities, with the, whatever, the, the education, the living in the temple, access to God, access to the Urim and the Thurim, to me. And if he needs atonement, we all need atonement. And the great picture of that is Isaiah chapter 6. Remember Isaiah come to the presence of the Lord and he sees the, the glory of the Lord filling the temple in his robe, filling the temple. When he, he speaks, it thunders and shakes the ground and the seraphim flying around. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What was Isaiah's response? He was undone like a dead man. He was ruined. He said, woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What an amazing thing. Isaiah spoke for God. His lips were as divine as anybody's lips. As God put the message, His message on His heart and on His mind and in His mouth, Isaiah's words were God's words. And yet still, inflicted with the sin of humanness, he saw how wretched he was. 
And, and I just say this, to approach the Lord, we need to be clean. That's why Aaron and his sons washed. That's why this clean garment was put on, so they'd be clean before going before the Lord. Listen, on our own merits we'll fall. And how different this was with Jesus. And how much better. Here again, commentary on this event. Hebrews 9. And I thought about reading all of nine chapters 9 and 10 as we go along. We could have done that, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to. But Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. I trust you can, yep, you can see that there. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, as in this creation. So in other words, the tabernacle that, that Jesus entered was not the Holy of Holies. He went through a greater, more perfect tent. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of, of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, and there is an allusion to this Day of Atonement, sprinkling the coals from the altar, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In other words, Jesus didn't have to bring goats, the blood of goats and bulls into the holy place because He brought His own blood into heaven to secure eternal redemption from us. That which, which the high priest is like, you know, he was playing minor league. This high priest was an earthly tabernacle with animals. Jesus is going to go into a heavenly tabernacle from which the earthly tabernacle was copied. You can read about that in chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. But he went to the heavenly tabernacle, which is the big leagues, and he brought his own blood. Thus, eternal redemption. And then the writers of the Hebrews, the writers of the Hebrews says that, that all this stuff of the priest was just external. It was it only cleansed the flesh, but Jesus cleansed deeper. Verse 13 speaks about sanctifies the flesh. So Israel was cleansed, but they're cleansed externally. But Christ cleanses internally. His, his soap reaches not just on our skin, not just on our tongue or in our mouth to wash out our dirty words, but it goes deep into our heart. Our soap does. He cleanses deep within, into the conscience. And this is fundamentally what makes the Old Covenant different than the New Covenant. The Old Covenant tended to be more external. Now, if you look deep, it wasn't. It was internal. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Deeply eternal. But much of it was focused on eating and drinking and feasts and festivals and, and rules and, and laws and regulations. And the Pharisees taking that all to be external. Their heart was far from God, is what Jesus said. But the Lord promised in the New Covenant there would be a change, right? Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on a day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not follow my covenant. I did not care for them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall no longer teach his neighbor, each one saying, No, the Lord. For all will know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. And I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The, the idea there is going to give them a new heart, a new spirit, putting it deep within, and that's what we experience in Jesus. It's an internal transformation that then flushes itself out in knowing God, in loving God. And we don't have to be told to know the Lord because we know the Lord. As First John says, you have an anointing. You don't need to receive an anointing. Everyone who believes has this anointing. You can know God 
That's what the book of 1 John is, is all about. I just say this. Do you know that deep within cleansing? Do you know that cleansing of the heart? Are you still dealing on the surface area trying to reform morally? Or has Christ struck you to the core so that you can have a, a clear conscience before the Lord? Are you serving a living God? As verse 14 says, going from dead works to serve the, the living God. Well, let's move on. We've got uh, the sacrifice for the priest. And now we turn, verses 15 and 19, to the sacrifice for the people. Verse 15, Then he that is the high priest, or Aaron in this case, shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people. Remember, there are two goats out there. He takes the one that's for the people. The lot fell there. He takes that goat. He kills it. And he brings the blood inside the veil and do with the blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. So the implication there is that the incense is coming as well. The, the ashes are coming as well. The coals are coming as well. It's this smoky mess and he's sprinkling out seven times. Thus says he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. You know what that means? He made a an atonement for the holy place, I'm not quite sure, but somehow the sins of people, that represents God, atoning for God somehow. I can't understand that totally. But And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. And then he says this, when, when, when Aaron enters, no one, verse 17, may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for the assembly of Israel. And then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord. So he's, he's gone in, he's done his business, and now he's going to come out and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goats, put on the horns of the altar all around. You remember the burnt altar had horns? All these altars have horns. These are just like, like projections on all four corners of the, um, uh, of the altar. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanliness of the people of Israel. This is almost identical to the first sacrifice, but the weight is far more. We're not just atoning for one person. We're atoning for a whole nation. And in many ways, the weight of the nation is on his shoulder. I mean, the only parallel I can think of, well, maybe I could think of some more, but maybe a leader of a big organization. But I think about the President of the United States and the burden that comes upon him as he thinks about potentially engaging a country in war. He thinks about the husbands and the fathers who will be sent in harm's way. Many who will come back in coffins. I remember George W. Bush talking about the weight of that. And there's some pre pressure now upon our president with the whole ISIS. And, you know, that, that's, but I, I'm just thinking that the pressure upon him has got to be immense. Thinking about what to do. So there's, a, there's a cry to do something. And what, but, but just, the, just the, the, the devastation, the destruction and the economic hardship and all these things just pie together. And it's like, oh, the weight of a nation. That, that's like the comparison. But this is the weight of sin Upon a priest. It's not to be taken lightly. 
Neither was entering the veil with blood and incense. Had to come rightly before the Lord. Right. This was the very moment when uh, Gabriel came and met Zechariah. You remember that in Luke chapter 1? Now, while Zechariah was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. They're they're praying outside here on this Day of Atonement. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Now, it may have been that he went into the, holy, may have been the altar of incense, probably just referring to the one in the, the, um, the front of the veil. But anyway, he's, he's encountering, he's coming before God. And it's interesting about Zechariah, he was unbelieving. He said, how am I going to have a child? And Gabriel says, you can be struck done until the child comes. It just shows how, how he, he wasn't he wasn't coming in faith. He wasn't coming believing in everything in, in, in many ways. And, and how many other priests entered the holy place without believing? I have no idea. But, how easy is this question? How can one sacrifice atone for the sins of all the people? If you were a thinking man, if you were a priest, like how can this one sacrifice atone? Especially a goat? I mean, you think that if it's going to atone for everybody, at least you get the bull, Right? Or maybe even you'd get more sacrifices, at least more than just one. Maybe you'd have ten or twenty. At the dedication of the temple, Solomon had hundreds, thousands of sacrifices, animals burned. You'd think that that maybe on this special day there'd be more than just one goat. I mean, a goat's what this tall? That might have some questions. How can a how can a one goat, one simple goat, do that? You know why? Because God said. Give me the goat. That's why it works. And, and maybe the significance here for this atonement is not so much the quantity, but the quality and the location of where this was offered. Uh, again, I take you back to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 9, 23 through 26. Thus it was necessary for the copies of of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. What's the copies? The earthly things. Because you remember when Moses, he, he went up to be before God. God showed him the pattern of what the earthly things should be like. Taken after the heavenly things, the earthly things are just a, a copy of the shadow. So these are the, the copies of the heavenly things. It was necessary for them to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered... Not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. See, see, Christ didn't just atone here. He he atoned heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself often, repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy place year after year with blood that is not his own. That's a clear allusion to the Day of Atonement. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation world. But as it is, he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. One sacrifice into the heavenly place and it's all atoned. And, and, and how many people look at the one sacrifice of Jesus and say, can that poor man who walked in Galilee some 2,000 years ago really atone? 
for the sin of the world? I mean, I, I can understand eye for an eye too. I can understand one person for another person. I can understand that. I can understand one for, for ten maybe, if the person's really good. But one for millions? Billions potentially? How can that be? And I think many people have had that question. And, and, I, and I think you go and you, you think about his, his sinlessness and how pure he was. We got that picture, right? Uh, with the lepers, with the woman with the blood, is that he doesn't become undefiled. The, the pure cleanses everybody. That's what he was about. Infinite pureness never is um, dirty. And it's right to argue his sinless humanity. It's also right to argue his, his divinity, that this was God coming to earth. But another category to argue might be the location of his offering. See, the atonement of bulls and goats was earthly, they were slaughtered at the altar, brought into the holy place, just the blood of the goat for the, all the people. And so, likewise, Jesus took his blood to the heavens and cleansed the heavenly tabernacle. Revelation 5. Remember how Jesus is pictured? He's like a lamb standing as if slain. A bloody lamb is in heaven, is Jesus. His blood atoned for the heavenly tabernacle. And maybe that's a part of what makes His sacrifice so wonderful. Jesus entered heaven itself on the merits of His own blood. Because see, if, if, if the blood of a goat was to atone for the sin of a nation for a year, certainly the blood of a Lamb of God is able to atone for the sins of the world. If you understand who Jesus is, if you understand the sacredness of the heavenly tabernacle. I say, church family, believe it. Embrace it. Proclaim it. This one sacrifice. This one sacrifice of Jesus. And, and, you know, there are many who fail to believe it and their doom is sure. As Hebrews 9 just continues, that's where it was. Hebrews 9.26 and here's 27.28. And just as is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment, people think, oh, they'll come back again, reincarnation. Or they think, well, I won't be judged because love wins in the end, right? All this will be, it'll all be good. No, 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 judgment comes. And so Christ, even offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time to deal with sin. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. He's not going to solve the sin problem of those He comes. He's going to come to those who's already solved the sin problem. He's coming again. Are you waiting for Him? Are you expectant? It's the message here of, Jesus, once going, once going to come back. Well, let's move on. Okay, we got these three events. Remember the sacrifice of the priest for the people, and now we see scapegoat. I'm just saying for a picture. Because that's what I think is being talked about here in 20 through 22. And when he made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, so when he's done with all his things in the holy place, the high priest Aaron shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who's in readiness. That is the guy who's prepared the goat and ready to take this journey off into the wilderness, how many hours or days it takes. And the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Now, this is clouded with mystery, okay? There's a lot here we just don't, we just don't know. 
Uh, back in verse 8, you remember the goat's name was Azazel. We don't know what, what that means. Um, other than the fact there, there are two goats, and one was for the Lord and one was for Azazel. In verse 10, it says that he was set, sent away to Azazel. So it's a, it's a name and it's a place. And the obvious question, what is Azazel? Well, there's been lots of answers, um, but the meaning is uncertain because it's not used enough. See, oftentimes when words aren't used a lot, you can't, you can't understand what exactly it means unless it's defined. And again, here's just a Hebrew word that's just brought into our, our English here. Septuagint Vulgate translations took the combination of the goat, the ez, and the drive away azel and said, okay, that's a goat that's driven away. I think that's probably as good as any. Um, some have just taken it to mean, as a result, drive away. Some have taken it to mean rough ground. And some have taken it to mean a demon. As if God gets his part and then the demon's got to be satisfied with, with his. Spurgeon, in his sermon on this passage, basically says, all I have to do is mention that to see that it's not right. So I think it's more this idea of a scapegoat is what I have pictured. I put a picture as a, as a scapegoat. What does it all mean? Well, here's what it means. I think it's... Oops, I hope I'm okay here. I think it's clear what this means. Here's, here's the high priest. He lays both hands upon the goat. Now, if you've been reading, thinking through Leviticus, it's not only just his hand, but here for some reason it is clear it's both hands on the goat. I, I think it's because all in, probably the idea. I think the... The confession of it makes it both hands as well. Even though they confessed over the bull, like here, here was both hands. The priest was and the high priest says, again, look at verse 21, you shall confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. He's just standing over that goat, just confessing sins for that goat, just the sins of the people, any sins he'd heard of, any sins that he knew. Maybe his prayers were a little like Daniel in chapter, Daniel chapter 9 or like Ezra in Ezra chapter 9 or Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter 1 confessing the sins of Israel. Or maybe it's a bit like uh, Solomon was anticipating in 1 Kings chapter 8 talking about when our people do sin and they go astray, oh God, be gracious and, and help them and forgive them. There's lots of prayers of confession in the Bible. We don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if this goat was prayed for for 15 minutes, half an hour, an hour just pleading with God that God would take all these sins mentioned on the head of the goat. And the goat, verse 21, was sent away into the wilderness. And it says clearly the goat would bear, verse 22, um, all of their iniquities on itself. So you, you just think, what does that look like? This is, this is the best picture I found. Just the... The goat and sin on its back and, and walking away. And I say, what a great picture for Israel. What a great picture to see your sin on that goat and the, the man in readiness has taken it, the priest has confessed, and your sin is just going away. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Well, there's the picture here. This picture is often in the Bible. Um, Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Right? That, that goat's going to go to the east. And we are in the west. And there it goes. And we'll never see our sins again. Or as Micah 7, 9 speaks about how God will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Right? There are wrecks down there that we can't ever find because they're too deep in the earth. 
in the sea. We find, we look for them because there are treasures down there. And we can't find them because it's so deep. Isaiah 38.17 says, You've cast all of my sins behind your back. God's not turning around, but it's behind your back. You'll, you'll never see it. You'll, you'll turn around. You won't, you won't see it. It's still behind you. Or Isaiah 43, verse 25, I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And in the mystery of the name Azazel, whatever it means, the, the picture is clear for all to see. Is that our sins were on that goat, is that goat flew away, never to be remembered anymore. And when God deals with sin, He really deals with them. He takes them away, He gets rid of them, and never brings them up again. That's the hope of the gospel, right? If you've dealt with people in your life at all, if I trust you all have, is it that. You can say, yeah, I've, I've forgiven you. Someone forgives you of some transgression you did. But some are back in that noggin of theirs. Right when you're at a, at a hurting point or a point of conflict, sometimes it comes up again. You're like, oh, I thought that was forgiven. It's not, because it's still there. And people can often deal with, with sins in that way, like remembering them. It's always the trump card that can be pulled to smash you. I see that happen in marriages sometimes. It's crushing to marriages. They start bringing up all their old sins. Friendships cut because of that. These old sins. Yes, I forgive you. And, and, and then it's brought up again. If it's brought up again, it means it's not forgiven. But God says, when He says, I will remember your sins no more, God can't forget, so it doesn't He forget them. But what He says is, I'm going to choose not to bring them up again because they're cast far away. And when God forgives a sin, it's gone. The debt's paid. We don't have to... Pay it again. And by the way, that picture there with the, the goat is exactly the picture of the New Testament. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you, when you were dead in your trans- trespasses, the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, He set aside nailing it to the cross. Jesus bore our sins in His body on the cross. His body was nailed to the cross. The the sins, all our sins, if you're a believer in Christ, long before you ever sinned, was forgiven at the cross of Christ. That's why the atonement is definite, because Jesus died for specific sins that are nailed onto the cross. It's just like the the sins on the scapegoat that go away. Our sins are, are forgiven. So just imagine with me now, your sins nailed to the cross. Just imagine that. Just think of sins you got. Written down. Nailed to the cross. Right here. You know, just right, right where Jesus was. Nailed to the cross. And they're all forgiven. That's what it says Colossians 2, 13. At the end of the verse there, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Now let me ask you now, where is the cross of Calvary? The Catholic Church claims that they've got replicas of it that would build 25 crosses, okay? But it's nowhere to be found. It's been decayed. Long lost hunk of wood. It's decayed. It's gone now. You know what that means about your sin? It's nailed to the cross. It's connected there. The cross is gone. Your sins are nowhere to be found. 
You believe and trust in Christ. That is the gospel. So I just say believe in Jesus. Trust the picture of your sins nailed to the cross. Trust the picture of the scapegoat. It's gone away. It's the day of atonement. See your sin walking away into the wilderness. Okay, we've got two, two more points and um, we're just going to zip through them. Verse 23 through 28. I'm just calling it cleaning up because you got all this, this, this carcass and this blood and these things and we're, we're lit special garments. That's all that's happening here. We're just, just cleaning up. Verse 23. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting. Shall take off the linen garment that was put on when he went into the holy place. Shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering for the people. There's the ram. And make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel, when he's gone, he shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought to make atonement for the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. And their skin and their flesh and their dung, in case they did their business there in the tabernacle, is going to be cleaned up as well, shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them, or even in the process of touching those and burning them, shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterwards he may come into the camp. There's Aaron washing. Those who lead the goat away wash. Those who deal with the skin and the dung will wash. That's all that this passage is talking about. I don't think there's any spiritual significance to this other than the fact that this is a, a reality of something that took place that day. And so I think about Jews today. What Jews celebrate today at Yom Kippur looks nothing like this. There are no animals. There is no blood. There is no dung. There is no Azazel. They don't have a scapegoat. Nothing to clean up. So what's up with the Jewish people? It says in verse 29, this should be a statute forever. In the seventh month and the tenth day of the month, you should do this. Well, remember in A.D. 70, the temple was destroyed by the Romans. The Jews today have no place for animals to be sacrificed. God said in Jerusalem, in the temple, on the mount, is where you must sacrifice. And the mount is controlled by Muslims today. Right? Who knows what this building is called? It's called the... The what? Dome of the Rock. It's one of the... Most holy places for Muslims, since mostly it's a holy place because it agitates the Jews, okay? But because that's right where the temple was, right there on that mount. It's a dome, it's a beautiful building. You see it anywhere you are in Jerusalem, because uh, it's kind of up there on a hill, and you can see that gold-plated dome, pure gold, the tune of like $8 million dollars. The king of Jordan gave it to the Muslims to, to cover that thing to make it done, make it done right. And right there is where you need to sacrifice. You can't sacrifice any other place. If you're a Jew, it's not possible to go there. First of all, the police aren't going to let you. If you get past the police, the Muslims who are there won't let you. And in fact, if you're a Jew, you don't want to go there where the Muslims are. You don't want to be defiled by entering a mosque. So where do you sacrifice? Where's your hope? What about September 23rd, 2015? What's going to be up with the Jews? See, the strong emphasis in this text has been do everything according to what I say or you die. You've got to do it this way. Strict instructions about what the Day of Atonement is like. So what about, what about a Jew? If you fail to do this, you'll, you may die 
you may fail to get forgiveness, is the implication of this. How did you deal with that today? I know I've asked at least one Jew, I remember. How, how, do you, how do you deal with this? And the answer came back exactly what the Jews say. Enter Rabbi Yohanan ben Zakkai. He lived during the days when the temple was destroyed. So I think he died like AD 90 or something like that. So he was, he was there when the temple was destroyed. He was kind of older to be an influential rabbi during there at the time. And, and uh, what he did was he looked at Hosea 6.6 6, and he came to this conclusion. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He said, therefore, the Jews must now replace sacrifice with prayer because of this verse in Hosea 6.6. 6. And when I asked this Jewish person, this was a, a friend of ours, and she later came to Christ, or she was, she was a Christian, she came to Christ, and then we asked her, she asked her mom, her mom said exactly this, Hosea 6.6. 6. She didn't quote the verse, she doesn't know what it is, but she said, God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So this is trumpeted in Jewish cultures, and it's been... The Jewish leaders of the first century embraced it and they've been committed to this ever since. And it's not that they don't want to do sacrifice. The Jews are, are fighting hard to get that piece of real estate there and uh, so they can do sacrifices again. And until then, I say all they can do is pray, but there's a problem. For a Jewish person, based on Leviticus 16, this is verse 29 again, it is a statue forever. Where are your sacrifices? Where are you going to point to for the forgiveness of sins. They can't say, God, you said we put that goat upon the altar and it blood sprinkled seven times and you will forgive us. You will cleanse us. The whole nation. You said that, God. When God says, where's your goat? And they say, well, we pray. God says, I said a goat. You say, well, we pray. They don't have a goat. They're in trouble. The way it's to be done if they're to be forgiven. Now, here's what it is. For Christians, we don't have that problem because we have a sacrifice. Jesus is our sacrifice. And God said that that sacrifice is sufficient for us. And you don't need to repeat a sacrifice. It's Jesus who's our one sacrifice. He fulfilled the Day of Atonement. He's become the Lamb that takes away our sin. We no longer need a sacrifice to follow God because we have the ultimate sacrifice. Follow the logic here of Hebrews 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of the realities, so in other words, the law, all this Leviticus stuff, it just shadows, right? Pointing us to Jesus. And this whole fact about coming in every year, I did just say there's something better. And this whole fact about one special day, like maybe one super special day is coming. It's all pointing to Christ. There's shadows of the good things to come. Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never... By the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. I do believe it can deal with forgiveness because God says so. He promises so that you'll be cleansed. But it's not dealing ultimately. It's not making perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, catch the logic of verse 2. Would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? In other words, if this sacrifice is good enough, I'm cleansed. I no longer have consciousness of sins. I don't need any sacrifices anymore. But I've got to come back next year. And I've got to come back next time. But when you have the perfect comes, then, then we don't have to come and sacrifice again. Verse 3. But in these sacrifices... There's a reminder of sins every year. There's a reminder of sins. You've got sins. You've got sins. You've got sins. And the Jews don't have that testimony anymore, sadly. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. I think here's the idea of the Kippur, the, 
the, the covering. Yes, God can cover those sins and deal with them. You, you read the logic of Romans three twenty one through 26, and it says, God is unjust that he's just passed over these sins previously committed. See, see God, God demanded a payment. He didn't get a payment. Well, it's, it's more like he covered them. He put it on credit card. But when Christ came, he forgave all those Old Testament sins. He forgave all those sins in the, the new covenant of those who would believe. Covered them all. But it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, I, I love this language, this take away language. It's a language I've always used when disciplining my children. He says, Can, do I forgive you? You know, when I get them there in the bathroom and they're crying and they're fussing. And, and um, they've had the, the Board of Education applied to the seat of knowledge in a, in a gracious way. And I take them and they're, they're crying and I'm with them and I'm pressing them to Jesus. And we're hugging and I'm kissing them. And I, and I say, no, do I forgive you? They say, yes. And I say, can I take away your sins? And they say, no. Who can take away our sins? Only Jesus. I believe in Jesus. And your sin's taken away. I, I, can, I can cover your sins. I can put them in. A, and I remind them often when I've done that, I'm never going to bring this up again. You don't have to worry about this anymore. It's done. It's forgotten. But I can't take away sins. Only Jesus can. And, and I take that from this language right here. The bulls and goats can't take it away. Ultimately, oh, there's a picture of that in the scapegoat taking it away. But it says impossible to take it away forever is kind of the idea. You can't do that. But John the Baptist, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, removes it totally, finishes it up. That's what happens. In Christ, our sins are taken away. They're gone, removed, irretrievable. You cannot get it back. You cannot get it back. Okay, last point. And this will lead to a point of application real quick here. The consecration, 29 through 34. This is what Israel was called to do on that day. Basically, consecrate yourself. Really pray, seek the Lord earnestly on this high, holy day. And it shall be a statute for you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and do no work either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you, for on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you, and you shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It's a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is the statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. Just this blanket atonement. And this shall be a statute forever for you that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, on that day, think about the Jewish response. The Jews were called to afflict themselves. It's translated various different ways. It's called humble yourselves. Make yourself low. The idea of afflicting yourself is to abase yourself. Some translations say fast. On that day, you shall fast. And, and note the reason, verse 34, because, right? Afflict yourself, mourn, be humble, be low, because on that day, Atonement is being made for you. And as followers of Christ, we, we can follow this as well. Doesn't, doesn't the Scripture, James 4, speak about humbling yourself before the mighty hand of God? In fact, I'm just going to look it up 
for you and just read it here about what James 4 says. It says, verse 8, draw near to God, He will draw near to you. If we draw near to God, He'll draw near to us. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. What you do, what you think, be wretched and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. He's saying, you people, put place in humility in your lives. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. I mean, forgiveness of sins is a joyful thing and can it be that I should gain interest in the Savior's blood? It is joy-giving. But there's also this humility that why would God... Ever since Adam and Eve, we've been plunged into sin. And why would He break in to, to reconcile us to Him? It's, it's nothing that we deserve. We, we can't demand it. It's all of grace that God has given it to us. And, and we are grateful and yet we don't, we don't presume upon it. As Paul even said to the Corinthians, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. We, we are to, Luther said in his 95 Theses that the Christian life is a life of always repenting. There's a place for repenting of our sins. Sorrowful that we put God to death for our sins. And so, let's mention the weekly word a couple of times. We're going to have a prayer service this Wednesday night, which we're going to seek to do that. Just 6.30 to 7.30, just real short. We're going to seek the Lord in humility. Just, and what this is, this is just an attempt, we've done this before, a praise and prayer service. Just let's, let's jumble things up lest we think that we've done our, our Christian duty because we, we read a few scriptures in unison with Ryan and we sing a few songs and we hear scripture reading and we bow our head and we pray and then we preach the word and then we go our way. Just, just let's stir things up. Maybe God will, will visit us. It's going to be like our praise and prayer services, but the emphasis is going to be on this humility aspect, repentance and renewal and revival. Yeah, we'll have some singing. We'll have a little bit of the Word, but a lot of opportunity to pray publicly. Confess sins publicly if you want to. We'll have opportunities to pray with people and just seeking the Lord. That's what the attitude of the psalmist was. My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to your Word. We're just looking for God to revive us, to help us, to stir us as a church. And per Leviticus 16.29, I just consider fasting that day. Whatever that means to you, whether it means no food, drink, nothing, that's fine. If you've got to have something, have something. If you're just going to have juice, whatever. But fasting is a way, Jesus says, right, when, when the bridegroom leaves, they will fast. Fasting is appropriate for us in a time of humility. And I'm just trying to say, okay, here's, here's Leviticus 16. The pinnacle of the book is calling us to a repentance. And maybe we'll, we'll be helped in following uh, 17 through 27 in terms of following after the Lord as we humble ourselves recognize our need for God in our life. That's what fasting does, right? It gives you a physical pain. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness like I'm hungry and thirsting for food. You might want to do that. We're not going to ask. Okay, you can come if you don't. That's just fine. But it's something just to consider. Just a day. Just a stir. Let, let's see what a day of corporate repentance and humility looks like. And I'm just praying the Lord would use that service in the, the life of our church just to stir us up, to seek God afresh. Let's pray. Father, I think of the blessing that the people of, of Israel had just once a year being forced to head on contemplate their sins and to see the goat slaughtered just for the priest's sins, for the people's sins, for the 
the tent of meeting, for just everything. God, just covering it so you're no longer angry with us. Thank you that in Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. God, your wrath has been turned away in the blood of Jesus. And God, in that we do rejoice. And Father would pray that as a church we would be a, a humble church. God, humble people just seeking you in gladness for sure. But in a, in a humble gladness, God, realizing that you've given us what we don't deserve, can't demand. God, it's been all your grace that's helped us with that. And so, Lord, we pray just for those who choose to come out Wednesday. May you touch us and anoint us in a special way. Um, God, I, I would pray that we would see the, the benefits of seeking you. And the benefits may be simply just a, an encouraged gospel that we're encouraged in Jesus. God, you may choose to hear our prayers where our prayers haven't been heard for months because of sin. God, whatever the way, I, I pray that you would touch us and use us. We thank you for the Day of Atonement, that Jesus is our great Day of Atonement. God, that he is the one who, who took away our sins completely. So we bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.